Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we continue this sermon series in Matthew's Gospel, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice, to believe it in our hearts, and to respond in obedience to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably know that in Matthew's Gospel, the public ministry of Jesus commences with a series of Beatitudes that begin with the words, Blessed are you. The public ministry of Jesus ends with the chapter that we're looking at this morning, and it ends particularly with that confronting passage that we've just had read, a series of seven woes that begin, Woe to you. Uh, those two things are counterparts to each other, either blessing or cursing, kind of bookending the public ministry of Jesus. Six of the seven woes in Matthew 23 start in exactly the same way. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites. There is a variation in one of the six, which begin, which was the, the third woe about oaths, which begins with the words, woe to you, blind guides. But that variation is just a stylistic thing. From the context, it's clear throughout that Jesus is addressing the same group of people, the religious leaders in Israel. Because those seven woes are addressed to the religious leaders in Israel, the approach that I'm going to take in the sermon this morning is um, kind of the opposite of what I would normally do. Typically, I would begin by putting a passage in its literary and theological context, and then I would say, now what does it tell us about Jesus? And the very last question I would ask would be, so how does this apply to us? The danger of following that normal approach would be that it would become all too easy to sidestep the challenge of this passage for us. What I mean is, because this passage is directly addressed to Pharisees and teachers of the law, and I take it that that's not us, it's very easy to say, yes, aren't they terrible? Aren't they awful? How could they have been so blind? And so to just look at what Jesus says with a kind of um, smugness, even a self-righteousness, because it's about other people and not us. However, as Stu pointed out in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is addressing both the crowds and his disciples, as he was at the beginning of the Beatitudes, as he is here at the end of the public ministry. Jesus intends his disciples to hear a message. Yes, it is explicitly addressed to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, but there is an implicit message to the followers of Jesus, like, don't be like them. Don't be hypocrites like the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Jesus wants us to examine ourselves in light of that kind of hypocritical behaviour and make sure that we don't do likewise. The words of Jesus here, and indeed elsewhere in the Bible, are meant to be a bright searchlight. They're meant to expose um, hypocrisy and deceit and self-righteousness and smugness and all those other things and when we find ourselves under that uncomfortable glare, it is very tempting to deflect the glare away from ourselves and, and point that beam towards other people. And I want to encourage us all not to do that today. So don't ask the question, how does, how does this passage apply to that terrible sinner who's sitting next to me in church, but how, how does it apply to me? As I've been preparing the sermon this week, that's exactly what I've tried to do. I've been prayerfully asking the question, Jesus, what are you saying to me from your word? 
And that's what I want to share with you this morning as I look at these seven woes. I'm going to apply the passage directly to myself and I'm deliberately not asking the even broader question, how does it apply to us as Christians? Because I know when I do that, I very quickly think of those other Christians who are much worse than me. As I keep the focus personal to me, I guess I'm encouraging you to do the same for yourself. Um, let's be open to correction. Let's let Jesus ask those uncomfortable questions and be prepared to sit awkwardly for a while in the, the righteous blaze of Jesus' righteousness. What about those seven woes then? Well, the first woe is to those who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. I've certainly been accused of doing this because as I teach that God does not approve of adultery or homosexual sex or abortion, people would say that what you are doing is shutting the door to heaven in people's places, faces rather. While I am convinced that this is what God's word says, there remains that really uncomfortable question for me. Am I doing it wrong? Am I turning away sinners, quote unquote, when well, what we do know is that Jesus was the friend of sinners? Am I shutting the door of heaven in people's faces? The second woe is about wrongly directed evangelistic zeal. Uh, as Jesus says, to travel over land and sea to win a single convert and then make that person twice as much a son of hell or a child of hell as you are. It makes me ask myself the question, um, is my aim in evangelism that people would join us? That is, it only counts if people actually become one of us, and by that I mean Sydney Anglicans. Like, that, that's, that's what really counts as being a Christian. Or, or is the thing that I really care about is that people are becoming joined to Jesus and the denomination and tribe is irrelevant? Is my evangelistic zeal misplaced? The third woe in verses 16 to 22 is the longest and the most complex. It's speaking against the elaborate techniques that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had developed in order to sidestep being bound to your oath. So that if you swore by the temple or by the altar, you didn't have to do what you promised. But if you swore by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar, then you were bound. It, it sounds really artificial, doesn't it? It's a little bit like children putting their fingers behind their back and making a promise and saying, it doesn't matter because I have my, my fingers crossed. What Jesus says here points back to what he already said at the beginning of his ministry on the Sermon of the Mount about oaths. That if you're, if you're obfuscating with oaths, it's just deception. What actually matters is truthfulness in all that you do. As Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do it, then do it. And as I hear this, I ask myself the question, am I always 100% truthful? Or do I speak half-truths? Do I make undertakings that I know that I can't really deliver on? Am I casual with the truth? Uh, do I say to people, oh, I'll pray for you, knowing full well that I'm probably not going to do that? The fourth row is about over-scrupulous law-keeping that actually leads to law-breaking. As you're probably aware, the Old Testament has a law that required people to tithe. And very particularly, you were meant to tithe, that is, give 10% of the produce of your fields, of your flocks, and of your orchards or your vines. 
What the Pharisees were doing was going over and above this. They were, they were giving a tenth of the spices from the herb garden kind of growing outside their kitchen window. That was way above the requirements of the law. And that in itself is not the problem. Rather, Jesus says, by focusing on those things, they have, quote, neglected the most important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And I ask myself the question, do I do that too? In my heart, is my primary motivation to, um, to, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with my God, uh, to paraphrase Micah 6, or am uh, do I think that I've done enough when I've kept the rules? So the problem is with the, the Micah 6 version is it's so open-ended. How do you know when you have uh, loved justice and uh, loved, sorry, acted justly and loved mercy and walked humbly? There's no, okay, five o'clock on Sunday I can, I can trot off, I've done enough. Um, it's much easier when you know what it is you're supposed to do. Uh, I, as I think about my life, I realise um, there are parts of my life which are Pharisee-looking. I take one day off in seven, um, and I find that sometimes I can be a Pharisee when it comes to my Sabbath day, which is a Friday, to the point where I'm not willing to respond in compassion to human need because I've got to take a day off in seven. I think, hang on, I'm pretty sure Jesus said something about that somewhere, that it's, I'm actually keeping the law, and in doing so I'm actually breaking a bigger law. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. A gnat, a very small insect. In the book of Leviticus, we're told that a gnat is an unclean insect. And so they were very scrupulous about getting the gnats out of the water so that they wouldn't be accidentally unclean. But Jesus said, you do that, but you swallow a camel, um, which is also an unclean animal, because you're so focused on the minutiae that you're missing the big picture. For me, that would be like rushing on past someone who is in need on the side of the road because I'm too busy with my ministry commitments. And I find myself doing that all the time. The fifth and the sixth woe address a similar issue. Is my focus on the outward appearance of law-keeping or is it on the inward righteousness, inward purity? Uh, the reference to cups and plates in the fifth woe is a metaphor for people who look clean on the outside, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And likewise, the whitewashed tombs in the sixth row are the same thing. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, uh, particularly around festival times, they would paint the tombs white because if you accidentally touched a tomb uh, during the festivals, you would become unclean and you couldn't participate. And so as a kind of public service, they would paint the tombs so that people would know not to go near the the graves. Um, but of course, ironically, uh, the, the tombs look beautiful because they've been painted white, but on the inside they are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean, as Jesus said. The punchline in verse 28 kind of applies to both the, the fifth and the sixth one. On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And for me, I guess, those words of everything in the words are the sharpest uh, rebuke from Jesus. Because I know full well what I'm like on the inside. I don't always practice what I preach. 
If, if I'm honest with myself, inside there is hypocrisy and wickedness and greed and self-indulgence and all the other things that Jesus calls out in this chapter. It's just that I've become really adept at hiding that from public view. I've been practicing it for a long time as a Christian, and so for the most part, I put, I, I joked with somebody this morning that I put about the rumour that I'm a good person, but, but there's a truth in that. I don't want you to know what I'm really like on the inside, because I know that I am a sinner. The seventh and the final woe is those is addressed to those who profess to honour the prophets of old, but who turn out to be just like their ancestors who killed the prophets of old. Whereas the first six of the woes do have a wider application to us as Christians, the seventh woe is specifically speaking to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And for that reason, we now need to double back and come back to what I said I was skipping over at the start and look at this passage in its context in the unfolding story of Jesus. These seven woes are the most unrelentingly negative words on the lips of Jesus. He describes the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as hypocrites, verse 13, children of hell, verse 15, blind guides, verse 16, being full of hypocrisy and wickedness, verse 28, and to cap it all off, in verse 33, he calls them snakes and broods of a brood of vipers. Um, so much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus' words of condemnation, and let's be clear, that, that's what they are, are because of what the religious leaders have done and what they are about to do. As Matthew's Gospel has unfolded, there has been a progressive hardening in the attitude of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law against Jesus. At the start, they're asking questions like, who, who is this guy? They're trying to work out who Jesus is. Uh, when Jesus says to the paralysed man in Matthew chapter 9, your sins are forgiven, some of the teachers of the law, not, not all, but some of them say, he's blaspheming. But then Jesus goes on to demonstrate that he's not blaspheming by healing the man. And then in the very next episode, Matthew 9, the Pharisees have their turn. And they ask the question, why does he eat with the, the sinners, the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes? And Jesus has an answer for them. And at that point in Matthew's Gospel, you think it could kind of go either way. They're asking the questions. Jesus has given them good answers. Are they going to get it? Are they going to work out that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the anointed one that God, whom God has sent? Unfortunately, as the story unfolds, it becomes very clear that they have become set in their opposition to Jesus. When uh, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man in, in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees say it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he cast out demons. We're told in Matthew 12, verse 12, that the Pharisees went out and plotted how to kill him. By chapter 16, they've teamed up with the Sadducees, and that culminates uh, in, in what you've seen in Matthew 22, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and pretty much everyone else has a go at trying to trap Jesus in his words. It's this group of staunch opponents that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 22. Matthew 23. That is, it's not the people who are still trying to work out who Jesus is, is, is he the real deal, should I follow him? These are the people who are seeing this work of God and saying this is the work of the devil, who have set their face towards killing him. 
and the seventh and the final woe point forward to what is coming next in the Gospel. Because he says that the religious leaders will uh, complete what their ancestors started, just like they killed the prophets of old, they're going to kill all the people that God will send them, uh, crucify them, flog them, kill them. And of course, implicitly, this is alluding to what is going to happen next in the Gospel, when the religious leaders will do that very thing to Jesus himself. What I'm getting at is that we have to read these seven woes in Matthew 23 in that context. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are not neutral in this. They have declared themselves to be the enemies of God and of his anointed one. And so when Jesus says in verse 33 about them not being able to escape being condemned to hell, he is declaring God's judgment over them. All the innocent blood of the martyrs throughout the ages cries out for vengeance from Abel, who is the... And Abel and Zechariah is not the A to Z. That's not why he picks those, uh, those people. Abel is the first martyr recorded in the Bible at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Uh, Zechariah is the last martyr recorded in the last book of the Hebrew Bible uh, uh, in uh, 2 Chronicles 24. And so it's like the, the bookends of martyrdom in the, in the Bible. All these people have been killed uh, by those who've set their face against God and his anointed. God will demand an accounting, and this generation are going to be the trigger for the judgment of God to fall because of what they have done and what they are about to do to Jesus. Matthew 23 is... It's sobering reading, isn't it? I'm sorry, I'm sorry that it had to be this morning. I don't want to be celebrating a birthday and we want to celebrate all that God has done for us. Um, it's, it's hard words to hear. But I want us to note that Matthew 23 doesn't end on that note of condemnation and judgment, but actually on a note of poignant longing. Like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings, Jesus longs to gather the children of Jerusalem to himself. Jesus is not saying, God, pour down a fire from heaven, the flaming brimstone, wipe out this generation because of what they have done to your righteous people through the ages and what they're about to do to me. No, there is a longing in Jesus. If only they would turn back. In no way does Jesus desire the judgment of which he has spoken, even if those teachers of the law and the Pharisees would now recognise what the crowds had said just days before as Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If they too would recognise who Jesus is and turn and follow him, they, they wouldn't face the judgment, if only. But they won't, will they? They steadfastly refuse. And Jerusalem will be left desolate. That's what Jesus is saying here. Matthew 23 has two quite distinct messages. But one way or another, it actually speaks to every single person here this morning. And either way, the, the message breaks us. No one can walk away this morning feeling complacent and self-confident. If you're feeling like that, you haven't quite heard what Jesus is saying. For those who are not yet the followers of Jesus, this passage holds up the example of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as a stark warning. And it's saying, like Jesus said earlier, do not be like them. Don't, don't set yourself in opposition to Jesus. Rather, hear that longing voice of Jesus who desires to gather you under his wings. Come to him and do not face the judgment to come. 
For those of us who seek to be the followers of Jesus, who identify as the followers of Jesus, and now have tender consciences because we have been reminded of our sin, our hypocrisy, our deceit, of what we're really like on the inside where God sees, even if no one else sees. We need to remember that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were condemned not because they failed to keep the law perfectly, they're condemned because they turned their back on Jesus, who is the only answer to our failure to keep the law. Remember the song that we had at the beginning? Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. We, we can't find mercy from God uh, because we all fall short of his, his perfect righteousness. Conscious of our sin, we need to turn to him and find forgiveness from the one who died because our righteousness would never surpass the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Remember that was the standard Jesus said at the very beginning of, of the Beatitude? Nobody can do that. So this passage, is a, is a, is a, uh, as I said, it breaks us because it makes us realise that we are sinners, but then it lifts us up to, to look again to the one who is the only remedy for sinners like me and like you. So my encouragement to us this morning is to hear what Jesus is saying to us through these waters in Matthew 23. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this picture of Jesus who longs to gather all of us under his wings like a mother hen does with her brood. Father, we pray that we would come to him and find forgiveness, knowing ourselves to be sinners, but knowing that your mercy is more. We pray in Jesus' name.